Uh, thanks, David. Uh, there is an outline in the bulletin and Bibles if you need them uh, in the foyer. Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we do seek uh, mercy and that each one of us here would receive uh, this word as actually your word, the word of our living creator God, uh, the true uh, source of all our life and the sustainer of our life, the one to whom all honour is due. Now, Father, help us to hear this word as spoken to us by you, to believe it, and in your mercy to put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you watch a child in the checkout abusing his mother because she won't get him that, you know, attractively displayed chocolate bar, or the interviewer who repeatedly interrupts the politician, even the Prime Minister, because she or he is not giving the answer the interviewer wants to her question. Or you see the patient's relative arguing angrily with the treatment team about the parent's treatment, or the protester yelling into the face of the policeman who's so barring his way into the offices of the Vice-Chancellor. You see these things and you think, this is not right. Where is the respect? You see, there are relationships where respect is due whether because of a person's skill or knowledge or the responsibility they carry or the office, the position they hold. That's true in our day and it is true and it was true in Malachi's day. A son honours his father and a slave his master. And all of Malachi's hearers would have nodded their head at that and said, yes, that's true and right. A son should acknowledge the importance and authority of his father by listening to him and conforming to his wishes. And a servant, whether a free man or serving in a household as a slave, should honour his master, show respect for his authority by doing what he says. Fathers and masters deserve to be treated as weighty people, not people whose will and words can be just dismissed. They'd all say, it's right. A son honours his father and a slave his master. And so God then goes on to ask his people, if I am a father, where is the honour due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? The Lord uses their understanding of what's right in relationships to highlight what is not right in their relationship with him. You see, in the covenant relationship the Lord had established with his people, established by his great might in rescuing them from Egypt in faithfulness to his promises, the Lord was spoken of as Israel's father and Israel as his son. This was the language of their faith. You are our father. I'll say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And in that relationship, it was implied that Israel were God's servants and the Lord their master. They were to appear before him to give account as the one who ruled over them. The Israelites belong to me as servants, for I brought them out of Egypt. And so the Lord, the Lord of hosts, whose power is unlimited, says to his people, test your treatment of me against your own standards. You as a people are not honouring me. 
That is, treating me as if I'm someone of importance, a, a person of weighty presence whose words matter. You are not fearing me, showing the regard and respect you should have for my presence and my word. And you're failing to do this, says the Lord habitually. This is the reality for people and priests. And it ultimately has its source in what we saw last week, a denial of God's electing love for them. But to support his statement, the Lord through Malachi focuses on the priests because this lack of honour is evident in their attitudes and actions. Oh, and yes, their failures are responsible for the lack of right relationship with God amongst the people. The Lord says... It is you priests who show contempt for my name. Now, some of you might be familiar with the whole idea of priests and sacrifice from reading the Old Testament, but let's just pause a minute and ask, who are the priests? Well, Malachi is using this term actually to include all the descendants of Levi, what we would call perhaps priests and Levites. And uh, we can get a bit of an idea of their role, even from elements in Malachi, but also from the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, the priests were the people responsible for all the daily operations of God's temple, the place where God had chosen, in a sense, to put his name, to dwell amongst his people. They were responsible, say, for opening the gates, for maintaining the altar fires, and they were especially responsible to perform the sacrifices that God had commanded in Leviticus. So this was a, a God-given role given to Aaron and his descendants. Yes, they didn't kill the animals themselves. No, the worshipper did that. But the priests were responsible for offering those animals upon the altar, for ensuring that the daily offerings were made responsible for right sacrifices being made at the right time. And those sacrifices were important. They were the foundation of the Lord's continuing relationship with Israel. It was through these God-given sacrifices, from the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement to the regular sin offerings, that sin was atoned for, that the offence of Israel's sin was removed from the sight of the Holy God so that he could keep dwelling amongst his people, keep being their God in covenant relationship. Sacrifice and priesthood were the holy provision of God to allow him to be present amongst a sinful people. And secondly, priests were also responsible for teaching the people the law. And this section of Malachi that we're looking at is just part of a larger section that does start in 1.6 and goes through to chapter 2, verse 9. And in this, God's going to address both aspects of the priest's role, sacrificing today's passage and the kind of teaching role of the Levites in chapter 2. But by God's appointment, the priests were the ones who mediated Israel's relationship with the Lord their God. And so it was they who blessed the people in the name of the Lord, they who interceded for the people. They had leadership in this relationship with the Lord. And yet, verse 6, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. And that was serious. Because, you see, the Lord's name is his revelation of himself. It's what he's made known of himself to his people. 
And there were times of particular importance in that revealing of himself where God had actually said what his name was. So, for example, Exodus 3, God speaking to Moses. Moses has asked for a name. How am I going to call you, address you? And God said, I am who I am. That's what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. This is my name forever. His name here is a statement of his almighty power. He's saying that he is the one and the only one who has life in himself, who's dependent on no one and no thing. And so he is the one who will always be as he is and so can always be relied on. Oh, God's revelation of himself includes the proclamation of his name to Moses at Mount Sinai after Israel sinned. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God was holy and God's name, this revelation of who he is, is holy. It expresses his distinct being, separate from all creaturely being, perfect in justice and righteousness, in love and truth. And as God declared himself to be, so he is in all his dealings with his creation, with his people. But the priests, the people who dealt daily with the Lord and the things of the Lord, the Lord says, are showing contempt for the Lord's name, treating his revelation of himself and his will as insignificant, something of no weight, something that can be easily brushed aside, disregarded, not considered. That was their settled attitude. You show contempt for my name. But rather than just accept this accusation from the Lord himself, they challenge it. You ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. And again, that's this language of altars and defiles, not something we're familiar with. But the priests worked in categories given in the law of holy, common, unclean or defiled. Only the holy could come into the, into the presence of the holy God. To be defiled, unclean, was to be declared unfit for God's presence and service. To say defiled food is being offered is to say that the priests were offering on the altar what was unclean, what God had said was unfit to be offered to him in sacrifice. Malachi anticipates another question from them, which, of course, either speaks of the priest's blindness to their sin or their contempt for God, thinking that they can just deal with God's charge by denying it. You ask, how have we defiled you? But God has an answer by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? By the Lord's table, Malachi is speaking of the altar upon which the sacrifices are offered. The priests are treating it with contempt as an insignificant thing, a sideshow, by offering upon it animals that God said should never be offered to him. 
Way back when God had instituted sacrifice, he'd said only unblemished animals, whole and without defect, could be offered on the altar. In fact, back there in Leviticus, he had specifically forbidden those animals the people were bringing and the priests were offering. Verse 22, do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured or the maimed or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. Only, only animals without defect should be offered. And yes, it is the people who were bringing these animals for sacrifice. But in accepting them, the priests are complicit with the people. They're facilitating and strengthening the people's contempt for the Lord. In accepting these blind and lame animals, they're actually saying to the people, you don't need to show honour to the Lord by obeying what he has said in relation to worshipping him. No, no. They're saying to the people, look, God's so unimportant, so insignificant, that he can be safely disobeyed. Oh, so insignificant that he ought to be pleased with whatever suits you to give to him. And so they're saying to the people they could give the Lord the second best. The animals they wanted to get rid of out of their flocks and herds. They could incorporate their worship of the Lord into the promotion of their own economic self-interest. And, and yes, and the priests were saying they could do that and still be okay. Now, to help them see the offence of this, the Lord gives them a human comparison. He says to them, try offering that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Uh, the governor was the head of the Persian administration. He's the person who could actually solve your problems. And you offered gifts to the governor, well, to get his interest and attention uh, to your issues and your concerns. And of course, your gift to him reveals your attitude, how important and influential you actually think he is. Well, to bring something cheap and something deformed, well, that said you thought that the governor in his favour didn't really matter and he'd respond to you by saying you and your concerns don't really matter. They're offering to God what they would never expect their human ruler to accept probably because they thought their human ruler actually had more influence on outcomes in their lives than the Lord. Their service of the Lord failed the comparison test. And it's actually not a bad test for our service of the Lord, is it, either? You should think, you know, think about the way you serve, the way you love Jesus, what you do for him. If you served your employer or your examiner, in the same way you serve the Lord Jesus, you know, in terms of your attention to doing what he says in the way he says it, you know, actually listening to him and following his instructions. If you served your employer or your examiner in that way, would they be happy with you? This offering of what God had forbidden was a serious failure. It actually strikes at the very heart of the people's relationship with the Lord, you see, the sinful, the defiled, yes, under God's provision, could be cleansed by sacrifice, by making atonement. But by offering defiled food 
Not only were they disobeying God, showing contempt for God, but they were also making their sacrifices ineffective. These sacrifices would never atone for their sin, in fact, just increase it. And that has serious consequences for them and their relationship with God, the relationship upon which their continuing existence as a people depended. Malachi outlines those consequences. Oops. Good. He outlines three consequences of this contempt for the Lord shown in their despising his altar. Firstly, verse 9, Plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands will he accept you? Intercession for God's favour, for his help and support, was actually dependent on right sacrifices, effective sacrifice. And so Malachi tells them with heavy irony that with such disobedient offerings, neither the priests nor the people should expect their intercession, their prayers, to be effective. They're actually cutting themselves off from God's help by this contempt. In fact, more, they were denying their relationship with the Lord. That's the point of the next verse. Oh, one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I'll accept no offering from your hands. Their relationship with God, says God, is non-existent, where they continue in such contempt. And it'd be good if they actually would make that clear, if appearance conformed to reality. And so he says to them, let's stop pretending. Shut those gates. You're self-deceived. If you think you can treat me with contempt and still have me as your God dwelling amongst you, there's no access to me on your terms. There's no effective sacrifice that would allow me to overlook your sin and still be in relationship with you. God's saying, I live among you on my terms only, for I am the Lord Almighty, so, not some needy idol kept in existence by your half-hearted devotion. Their contempt, seen in expecting God to accept what they were prepared to offer God in place of what God had commanded, meant they are still cut off by their sins from God's favour, distant from God, alienated from him. Oh, and their contempt also means that they're entirely out of step with God's purposes, his purposes for the whole world, which he is determined to realise. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations says the Lord Almighty. You see, God's saying to them, I am so great that I will bring about right worship of myself everywhere, from every nation, even nations you despise as idolaters, everywhere under the sun. God's anticipating that time that he also speaks of in the other prophets, when all the nations will come and worship him. Just two examples, Zechariah. Many peoples and inhabitants of many cities will come. Let's go at once to entreat the Lord. Or Isaiah 42, speaking of the work of the servant. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison. And at that time, there will be true worship. Worship which is not dependent on a temple and a priesthood descended from Levi, this is the time that will be brought by the servant, the Lord Jesus. 
That's, of course, one reason why we're so unfamiliar with priests and sacrifices. Because Jesus, by his one sacrifice as that servant bearing our sins in his body on the tree, has actually brought that time, the time that Jesus described to the woman at the well in Samaria, when true worshippers will actually not be dependent on a temple here or there, but will worship the Father in spirit and in truth wherever they are because they've embraced the truth of Jesus and he has given them his spirit, always in his presence. The priests of Malachi's day think that they are so necessary to the worship of the Lord that God's dependent on them and they can give whatever service they like. They think they can despise the Lord. But all that means is that they've excluded themselves from present relationship with God and not knowing or refusing to acknowledge the greatness of the Lord who's rescued them from Egypt, who's given them sacrifice, who's continued to persevere with them because of his steadfast love, refusing to acknowledge the greatness of the Lord, they'll also fail to enjoy that great time of the realisation of God's purposes for his world through the calling of Israel. When the Lord's revelation of himself in saving through his Son will cause people from all nations to joyfully worship him in the way God commands, in spirit and in truth. But these priests showing contempt for God will miss out entirely. In fact, Malachi, just to bring the point home, intensifies his exposure of their sin in treating God as of no account by contrasting their response with what the response of the nations will be. God's name will be great among the nations, but you profane it. That is, they habitually treat God's name as an unholy thing. That's what it is to profane. It's to treat as unholy. And that, of course, means that they are treating the Lord as if he is not holy as if he's not separate from all sin, fully committed to his word and to his law. And they are doing that on the other side of the destruction of Jerusalem in God's holiness. <laughs> they treat God as an unholy thing by treating the things of God as unholy, the sacrifices as defiled and contemptible. The priests are actually really consistent. <laughs> you know, they say... God's not holy, so he needs no atonement, no need for right sacrifices. And then they reinforce their belief. If there's no need for right sacrifices, it's because God's not holy. His judgments don't need to be taken into account. His standards are ones we can put aside without fear of consequence. In fact, so inconsequential, so involved in the real world of their lives do they believe the Lord to be that worshipping him, doing what he has commanded to sustain their relationship to him is just burdensome, tiresome, a drudgery, something they sniff at, they look down their noses at. Familiarity with the ritual, without genuine knowledge of the true God, without fear of God, has just bred contempt for the things of God. 
And where the priests think you can set aside God's standards, his commands for how we live with him as his people, well, the people will show no respect, no fear of God either. Worshippers taught by these priests now think they can lie and cheat God. When you bring injured, lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who is an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Uh, people in those days used to make vows, that is, make a promise to God to offer a sacrifice if he delivered them or granted their request. And God was very clear about what could be offered. That was what Leviticus 22 was speaking directly to. You could offer the unblemished animal, but not the blind or the injured or the maimed. But in Malachi's day, people would promise a beast without defect. And when the time came to fulfil their vow, they'd substitute it for an injured or diseased animal. And in doing that, of course, they were doing something God had explicitly forbidden, Leviticus 27.10. They must not exchange it or substitute a good one for a bad one or a bad one for a good one. And the people were doing this without fear because they had the cooperation, the acceptance of the priests. They didn't worry about what God would think because the priests had taught them that made no difference. The priests were actually teaching the people they could have religion without the full cost. They could have a discount spirituality with a God who didn't care for his own glory, the reputation of his name, or was unable to uphold his own law. But the priests were wrong. God does care for the reputation of his name. It will be great among the nations and he is able to uphold his law. And so through his prophet, God pronounces judgment on these cheats. Cursed, he says, are those who cheat. They fall under the severe judgments pronounced in Deuteronomy because a curse is a judgment which excludes people from enjoying any of the blessings or benefits of being God's people. The failure of faith of the priests, their failure to honour their God as he deserved by listening to him and conforming their service to his word, that failure has led God's people into judgment, not blessing. And the short-term, this-worldly benefit, those offering this corrupt, worshipped hope to gain by listening to these priests, actually turns to their eternal loss. They lose their place in the people of God and for what? A little more money for themselves when they sell this healthy sheep at sale. It's a dreadful thing, isn't it? When those in the leadership of God's people cease to fear and honour him as he deserves. When they forget or willfully turn aside from what God has revealed of his holiness, seen in his judgments on sin. When those in leadership, well, teach people by their actions that God is insignificant, his work can be set aside, that you can offer him whatever you like in place of what he commands, that you can even regard what he asks of you as a bothersome burden and imposition. That's a dreadful thing, isn't it? And yet many of us are in leadership, aren't we? 
leadership in our families, in Sunday school, in growth group, in youth group, in kids club. It's a dreadful thing, isn't it, when Christian leaders cease to make the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. You know that petition? Hallowed be your name. The first desire of their heart. See, what that petition is asking for is that the person who's praying the prayer, you, and all others would reckon God's revelation of himself to be true and certain. The alone truth of God, set apart from all human speculation and lies. That's what you're praying when you're praying. Hallowed be your name. You're actually asking that you and all others would honour the living God by believing all that he has said about himself. That you would trust all his promises, that you would heed all his warnings, that you would obey all his commands. Is that your prayer? Because Jesus says it should be the first request of everyone of his disciples. It's a dreadful thing when those in leadership of God's people cease to fear and honour him as he deserves. We should be so grateful, shouldn't we, that as believers in Jesus, we have a faithful priest, the Lord Jesus, who did seek the honour of God's name above all, who never thought God insignificant, someone whose will could be set aside. No, the Lord Jesus, who reckoned God of such weight, worthy of such honour, that he would say, not my will, but yours be done at the cost of his own life, and so offered the sacrifice of himself, bearing our sins on his, in his body on the tree, that can let us live in the presence of the holy God forever. We should be so grateful we have such a priest. But you know, there are still lessons for us to learn from Malachi. See, God's word is given also to rebuke and correct God's people. And we need to hear more of this warning against treating God as weightless, insignificant, able to be disregarded. We need to hear it. Well, because scripture says we are all now priests trusting Jesus and we have offerings, sacrifices to make in response to God's kindness to us in Jesus. Oh, and yes, we need to hear it because we can lead others into sin in their attitude to God by what they see of our attitude to God in our actions. So what are we being warned against here? Let me just give you three things to think about. Firstly, we're being warned against ever treating the means God has given us for our sins to be atoned for lightly. That is, we are being warned of ever treating the death of Jesus lightly. And you think, how could we do that? Well, you start to think of the death of Jesus lightly when you start to think of your sin, your disobedience to God, as something that's insignificant, something that God can just overlook or just, you know, just get over. Oh, we start to think of the death of Jesus lightly when we forget the truth about God, that he is a holy and just judge. Or when we start to think that there's some other way of being right with God than through the death of his son. You know, we can rely on our own works or this other teaching. 
Uh, the book of Hebrews, the reading that you heard read, is a warning against what's called apostasy. That is, of turning aside from trusting Jesus in his death to be right with God. It's a warning against seeping, ceasing to confess the crucified Jesus as Lord and Saviour and relying on him completely for your eternal life. Now, it's a very serious warning. You, you heard it. Uh, there's no sacrifice left. The Lord will judge his people. It's serious. But how did people get to that point? Well, people don't just wake up one morning after trusting Jesus their whole life and saying, oh, I don't believe in him anymore. No, no, there are steps along the path to apostasy. We actually drift away from that reliance. You know, there are steps of marginalisation that actually just moves Jesus more and more to the periphery of life. There are steps of discounting sin. Oh, I no longer think that is as serious as I used to. There are steps of not treating God and his word with seriousness. Oh, I know God says that then, but no, no, he doesn't say that now. You know, we can even come and become impatient with services shaped around remembering the death of Jesus. We can come and say, oh, they're starting with confession of sin again. I came to be really get a boost this morning. I don't want to hear about my sin. As if we can come to God in some other way than trusting Jesus. We can start to want to have something else other than the cross at the centre of our relationship with Jesus. We can allow the cross to recede into the background of our thing as we focus on other things like power or getting good relationships or the moral life. We can start to let the means God has given us to be right with him, the death of Jesus, become small in our thinking. Let me be practical. Next week... We've got the Lord's Supper. Will you be here? Will you be here because you have an invitation from the great king to come and hear him say, this is my body. Oh, will you think to yourself, no, I'll sleep in. There's always next month. Will you be prepared for it? Will you come to hear Jesus speak his gracious word to you, having reflected on your sin and how much you need him to show you grace? Will you engage while you're here? Will you see it as a moment to remember the death of your Saviour and that this is what secures your eternity and brings you forgiveness? Will you, as you think of Jesus in that upper room on the night before his death, see the horror of your sin that drives him, the Son of God, to the cross and grieve for it and yet be freed from the guilt and the fear of judgment at the same time and know the joy of that as you eat and drink? Or will you be sitting there fretting about the time and your guests coming to lunch? And We're being warned against ever treating what God has done to atone for our sins lightly. We need to keep Jesus' death at the centre. And secondly, have you started to treat what God calls holy as if it were common? 
or even worse, as if it's something that gets in the way of your relationship with God, being the person you want to be. Just one example. There are a number of things God calls holy in the New Testament, but here's one. It's a pretty major one. Don't you know, says Paul to the Corinthian believers, that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred. That is, God's temple is holy. And you together, the congregation, are that temple. God calls his people, his church, holy. So you ought to think, how am I relating to God's church, his gathered people? Do I see it as a bore, a hassle? Uh, is it, well, where I can, in a sense, be destructive by just pursuing my own selfish interests? Can I think that these are people whose good I can ignore, whose welfare I can be indifferent to? Or will I see them as God says they are holy, precious, set apart for your God? So that in a sense I am thoughtful in all my interactions with them to do them good. How do you relate to the gatherings of God's people? Because let's face it, they are so simple and they're such routine things that you're expected to do week after week, just like the priests were expected to sacrifice day after day. It's easy, isn't it, in our age to discount the routine, to resent the regularity. Is that how you feel about the meetings of God's people, God calling us every week to meet together to build each other up in the faith? Or do you value it? Do you welcome it? Because here you are living as the people of God and you know your God in your midst. Or do you substitute your own word in dealing with holy things? You know, do you say, oh, I don't need to meet? Or do you say, oh, yeah, I meet, but you actually come to meet with some other purpose, not to build people up to love and good works, but, you know, to perfect your gifts, to get acclaim, to, you know, increase your reputation, increase your influence. Are you treating what God calls holy as holy, relating to it in the way, relating to his people in the way he commands? Thirdly, we're actually all called to offer sacrifice in response to the sacrifice Jesus has made for us. It's the sacrifice of our whole lives. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Oh, elsewhere, we're told that we ought to offer the sacrifice of praise, the, the fruit of lips that openly confess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. In making those sacrifices that God calls for, especially, say, in the sacrifice of time and money to love your brethren or to speak to others about the gospel, are we giving God less than he asks for? Are we giving second best? Are we saying, what a burden? actually love our God and do his will. You know, there is a giving of ourselves that God asks for 
an example of sacrifice that we should follow. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. That's the example of love for our brothers and sisters that we are called to follow. So are we just fitting the Lord in? Perhaps after our work or our wife or husband or our children, yeah, we'll find a bit of time for him and for his people and for pursuing his... Or are you being like Christ, who loved and who gave himself and who was zealous for God's reputation in the world? And remember... If you say you're a believer and you don't take God seriously, why would anyone else, your neighbours, your friends, your children? Let's listen to God speaking to us, God's people in Malachi. Let's be a community that takes the Lord and his revelation of himself seriously, that trembles at his word. Let's keep Jesus' atoning death central to our life together and central to our life with God individually. And yes, let's keep thinking as his death teaches us to think. Let's keep thinking of life in terms of sin and of judgment and of salvation to eternal life by the death of our Lord. Let's make sure we honour him by honouring his people, treating them as holy, keeping love real where we meet to fulfil God's purpose for our meeting and we meet regularly. And let's cheerfully make the sacrifice he calls for from each of us, the whole of our lives, the sacrifice that flows from gratitude for being made his people, forgiven, adopted as his children, that flows from gratitude for being made his people, through the death of his son once and for all. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be people who say we are your people but then treat you with contempt by saying we can give you whatever pleases us, not what you command. Help us, we pray, to always treat the means by which we are right with you forgiven atoned for. Help us to always treat the death of our Lord Jesus with great seriousness and to keep it central to our lives and our hope. Help us to be people who treat holy things as they deserve to be treated, that show our respect for you, the holy God, by respecting your holy people in all our dealings. And gracious Lord, help us to be people who make the sacrifices you call for from your redeemed people, the sacrifice of our whole life, the sacrifice of giving ourselves in love like Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.